Is there anyone here who loves genealogies? Any like, you know, Ancestry.com kind of people? You know, cover around. Cool, cool, cool. See, this is right up your alley. This is going to be good fun. Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's prepare ourselves, prepare our minds. Uh, why don't you join me just in praying for, for a brief moment of asking God to, uh, to prepare us to hear him speak. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of this, this good news of Jesus, your son. And Father, we ask that as we are here now in your presence, that your spirit would enliven us, grow us, that we would, we would be uh, prepared, open to hear you speak, that your spirit would, would uh, move amongst us and that we would love and encourage each other in action because of this. Father, we just ask that uh, you might have your way in and through tonight, that your word wouldn't return to you empty, but would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, Raf. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David. Oh, someone switched my version up, so it's probably not as helpful for you guys. I'll switch it back. Here we go. NIV. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Now, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Why record the ancestors at the start of a gospel? Like, like what's, what's the thinking there? It, it, does, does it matter that this is the start? It, it's not a pretty little opening. It's not sort of like a, a, a movie sort of, it's not, it's not even like a, a deep and meaningful prophecy at the start of a sort of a fantasy movie that, that there's a, a pattern that's going to be fulfilled later on. Uh, why a genealogy? I mean, John, John's gospel. There's no the start of John. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It starts with this, it's like a work of art. Uh, these words beautiful enough to describe God. Uh, Luke's a bit different again. Luke starts with a scholar's preamble, you know, that kind of thing, reassuring you that the thesis is, is well-reasoned and sound and the, and the research methods were appropriate. And then Mark starts with the action. This is the gospel of Jesus. And then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. So why does Matthew start with a genealogy? What's he trying to achieve with his opening? And so we're going to try and find out. Um, Come with me just to verse 1, because he straight out starts calling Jesus the Messiah. Very, very quickly, he gets this big title. Now, I don't know if you know if you should care about whether Jesus is called the Messiah or not. What is a Messiah? Well, the Messiah, it's the same word as you will hear Christ. So when you hear Jesus Christ, the word Christ is not Jesus' second name. It, is, it means anointed one. It's the same word as for Messiah. And, and so if you are a Jew, you know that three types of people are generally anointed, are, are sort of Christ's, are Messiahs, when they are brought into office, prophets, priests, and kings. But what the people at this time wanted, there was a definite preference out of prophets, priests, and kings. They wanted someone to fight. They wanted a king. Someone to take their land back. Someone to give them their dignity back. Because, of course, they were under Roman occupation. Having come back from this exile that we hear about. But they haven't got their dignity back. They're back in the land, but they haven't got self-determination back. And they want that. And Matthew here, did, did you notice as it was read out, Matthew is not disappointing the people who have got that urge. Verse 1 there, son of David, son of Abraham. Well, what was David's most famous moment? Killing a bloke. What, was the, what are the songs, not the songs that he sung, what was the first song sung about him? That he's killed thousands of men. Don't know if he had at that point, but you know, he was enjoying the song. This guy, he's a fighter. The reason he wasn't allowed to build a temple was because he was a man of blood. He was good at killing people. And he was good at political securing of borders because he knew his way around with a sword. And so when we've got a son of David rocking up, this sounds good. This sounds like we might get our way. That's, that's the very start. The son of David, the son of Abraham in verse 1. Verse 6, we, we, we get this sort of emphasis here on David again as you get to that point in the genealogy, and you think, well, no, he's just in the genealogy. But do you notice the, the word that's different for David than for the others who come after him? So he's got king in front of his name there. Like, Solomon was a king too. He's like, what am I, chopped liver? Well, so was the, the next guy, Rehoboam. And, uh, these guys are all kings too, but David's the only one who gets that sort of title here within the middle of the genealogy. He's the only one who's there. So what's Matthew trying to do with this? Why David? Why the emphasis on David? Well, there's, there's lots of ways that you can preach this passage. You could preach actually about a lot of sermons from it. There's something I really want to grab that I think that Matthew is doing here for us this Christmas. As we lead into Christmas, as Matthew's trying to guide us into who this Jesus guy who's rocking up is going to be, there's something in particular that I want us to see. Verse 17, we get down there, we get to the end. He says here, um, 
and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. Oh, sorry, that's the that's the uh, yeah. Sorry, that's the yes. That's right. That's the exile bit. And, and you see that we, we sort of the structure here of the um, of the genealogy has actually got three bits. You've got founder Abraham. You've got fighter David, and then you've got failure at the exile. This is the point where they lose their country, and you've got a God who actually disowns His people. It's a very very poignant moment. I don't know how many other religious texts have a God disowning their people and abandoning them like that. And it leaves behind this big mess to clean up. I'm, uh, I'm still just getting to know the AFL, but, if, but tell me if this analogy works. Israel at this point, 14 generations after the return from exile, they are North Melbourne. Is that about right? Like they got a couple of wooden spoons in recent years, second last last year. Like they just, they're, they're a shambles. And you, don't, and you don't get a top draft pick, you know, just being the bottom nation at the bottom of the barrel for this. Rome doesn't give you any special privileges. They have been in the market for a Messiah for a while. This sounds good. They want one. In fact, actually, lots of Messiahs have shown up. They have had rebellions. They have been, uh, had their hopes gotten up a few times now. And as you see here in, the, uh, in verse 17, it's time. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile. And now, this is the 14th generation after the exile. It's It's time. Now, look, you, uh, you'd, you'd better be the Messiah if you're going to come in and bring back blessing to this bunch of people. They, they have come back from exile. They have never come back to blessing, let, let alone being the source of blessing for the whole world, which was actually their job as a group of people. You see, if, if, if uh, Matthew's really keen to identify Jesus as, as the guy, as the Messiah, as the anointed one that they've been waiting for, this great king... Uh, Israel's identity as a nation was to be the ones through whom the whole world would be blessed. Their job is to, is to grab hold of God. We're going to be the, the few who, faithful few who trust the real God who created the universe. And through that, you are going to bring blessing back to the whole world. So you've got to, you'd want to be the Messiah. You'd want to be the guy. Now, Thinking about identity, first Messiah, then we thought about Israel. There's this helpful thing that I've, I've sort of been taught about identity. Uh, there's sort of two, two parts to identity, I guess. Um, one is that identity is about direction. It's about direction. So, because uh, you don't just think, well, who I am, that's not really a very static thing, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you come from your parents and you're a certain way there, but then you're raised through that and then you come to a point in your journey, but also maybe you've got goals and dreams and where you want to get to. And so you can actually think of your, your identity as actually a, 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 like a, if you're a real nerd, um, a vector. It's got, you've got an origin point, you've got a magnitude and you've got a direction, right? You, you, you've got a place where you've come from, where you're up to in your journey right now and where you're headed. That's sort of one way to think about your about identity. And, and the second thing that I want us to sort of, sort of see, I guess, about identity is that it's embedded within relationships. Do you see here, even just the very nature of a genealogy tells you here that the past matters. You can't just say who I am now. The past matters. And that embeds me in relationships. You see, my parents matter to me. They should. They don't have to matter to you because they're your parents, but they have to matter to me. Something about my past 
changes my duties. It puts me in relationships. And all of our, uh, the most important things about our identity are, are about our relationships, aren't they? Now, Soul Church was birthed by the gospel of Jesus. That's how Soul Church came about. We live now trusting Jesus for everything. He gives us life. We're, 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 we're hanging on to him. He is the source of all things. He, he is the one we're just... We're trying to trust in him and he lets us participate in the way that he is saving the world as we tell people that he's king and for the grace and the love that he's shown for them. And he grows us through, through um, speaking the truth in love with each other through relationships, but also through suffering. So we were birthed by the gospel of Jesus. We live now trusting him, living for him, and, and uh, being grown by him. But what we, but, so that's our past, our present, but then our future, we are gro- the future we're growing into is that we are headed to a new creation where that people who right now are being grown through the truth in love, together in relationships where sometimes we suffer, that growth will leave us fit to reign and to, and to rule and to, and to take care of that creation then that day. And so that is actually our story. That is, that, that, that is our story together. And that is the story of the church all over the world together. And the thing is, King Jesus decided that that would be true. Like, oh, I didn't decide that. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what, I, what we choose to put in a vision statement. That was decided by him. And so you see somewhere here, we've actually got to start getting used to, in some ways, um, receiving our identity. It's not, not really something that our culture really does very well. It, we, we in Australia tend to want to define ourselves. Um, people ask each other, you know, what do you identify as in our current world? What, 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 we choose our pronouns. It's normal for the burden of representing ourselves to actually fall on us. Australians are paying less and less heed to where we've come from. Often, actually, it's understandable. I, I, I know some people who come from some families, and I'm like, you know what, I, I get that you want to be as unlike your father as you possibly can. I get that. Makes sense. Because, like Israel and ourselves, the families and authority figures in our lives, the sinners, sinners warp them too. And yet, it, there's this rejection of our origins that, that we, we, we want to go a long way along that track, I think. Uh, if, if you've ever sworn not to be like your parents, you'll kind of get a little bit of what I mean, right? And it's led, to, I think, in our culture to a sense of, of no anchor, rootlessness, a desire for something longer and deeper and, 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 and bigger than me to connect to. But also a, 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 a desire for... Who's going to be the person who's going to tell me how to understand the world? How, how am I going to... How am I going to um, find out how to, how to understand the inadequacy of where I came from and why it was like that. Who's going to help me understand that? Why was it so bad and, and how do I deal? And who's going to take care of me? I think we have those desires in our culture. I, I wonder if that's a part of sort of the, the rise of that kind of modern influencer kind of thing. Like these, these different people who tell you how the world works, who help you put reality together 
to help you, who, who give you a narrative, a story. Why is this the way that it is? Why am I the way that I am? And don't you feel good when you just know why I am the way that I am? Doesn't that just, just help and just, just give you a, a sense of, oh, I'm rooted somewhere, I know where I come from. Right? And I think sometimes even some of those people are so magnetic because it also seems like they care. And I'm not saying that they don't, but you've got someone else who, who cares too. They're not only just going to tell you how it is and where you came from, but they're also going to tell you, they're also going to tell you that they care about you. And so we can think, I want to identify as that person. That's my kind of person. I don't want to be where I've come from. I want to be that, and that's who I'm going to choose to identify as. Now, some people don't go that way. And this might be you. You might be too fiercely independent, a bit too stubborn to sort of think, listen to anyone else and let what they think uh, tell you what to think. And uh, for those people, sometimes the lonely weight of defining ourselves, well, particularly if we want to do it well enough to be impervious to criticism by the world, that, that, that lonely weight of, of coming up with an acceptable view of the world that can't be criticised, well, that's, that, that's, that's heavy. Anxiety lives there whether it's by your politics or your political views, your sexuality, your views on gender or your achievements. If you, if you want to sort of build your own identity, it's, it's just a big job. It's almost one of those jobs you want to say, hold on, just count the cost first because what happens if you can't complete it? Uh, I, I, it was a bit of a haunting night. There was a, I'm not a perceptive... <laughs> I was not, particularly when I was younger, I was not a perceptive uh, young man. And so it was, it was very strange to me, the moment when I was talking to my sister and she was, she was there trying to do this assignment to finish off her, uh, her IT cert four or something, cert three, something like that. And uh, I could just almost see the crushing weight on her shoulders in her felt need to get a job in the same field as her degree. Because what if she couldn't? Who, who, who was she if she couldn't do that? It was, it's crushing that, that when, we, when we put that weight on our own shoulders. Now, so far, I'd say Tasmanians seem a bit more down to earth than that, right? Most of you guys seem pretty like in touch with your heritage, maybe a bit more so than your mainland counterparts. But even down here, I haven't seen an ad lately saying, hey, buy this product, you'll do your family proud. That that's the motivation that it'd actually be to, to retain, to, to help you to retain your connection with and your, your identification with the place that you came from. We disanchor ourselves and we move away. Now look, um, I, I have no choice to have genetics other than the ones that I have. <laughs> I have no choice to have parents other than Alex and Gail. I could, I could, well, if, if someone, let's, let's, I don't even want to say the words, if, if someone were to disown their parents, that's what it would be, right? It wouldn't be that those people were never their parents, it would be that they had rejected the people who they had come from. There's something about identity that we receive. Now look, um, there are so many things that we could delve into this genealogy for. Um, there's important stuff and beautiful things here, but there's, there is one fun detour that I want to take that's, that, that, that you, you kind of can't miss here. Did you notice the women in the genealogy? A bit hard to miss, I deliberately tried to sort of read it that way. And, and I think the funny thing about them here is they're actually... Oh, sorry, we don't want to get too far ahead. Um, 
they're actually a bit like graffiti on a whitewashed wall here in this context. Not because they're bad, not because of their character. Uh, in fact, they're actually, they're on the nose because they bring to mind the poor behaviour of those who are on the Mount Rushmore of Israel, these, these luminary whitewashed figures. Uh, they're, they're like a whistleblower who, who, who's sort of unpopular, who's, it's, it's awkward. We don't, we'd rather you didn't kind of exist right now because you make us all look bad, and they do. That's what they're there for. Uh, we'll, we'll go through it. Um, see, see these mention these women. Judah. Well, the Jews were named after Judah. This, this, this is the guy. So anyone who's reading this, the people Matthew wrote this for, they're like, ah, well, sweet. Okay, we're, we're in this genealogy. This isn't just Jesus' genealogy. I'm in this story still so far. And ta- he had a daughter-in-law, Tamar, whose uh, husband, his son, died. He's a Canaanite daughter-in-law. She became a widow. And in the end, he was humiliated for his infidelity and for not providing her with a redeemer, as he should have, to take care of her. God was displeased with him, was displeased with his son. That son died, sort of it's so reminiscent of Elimelech, and we've just done the book of Ruth, for those of you who haven't been around, so that's partly why Ruth's so fresh in the mind. But it's so similar to that story. And yet, he did not do well by her. Judah, the, the great forefather. Uh, second, Rahab. We come now, we see Rahab. Rahab was a citizen of Jericho, one of the, the, the um, cities in Israel when, when Israel was coming in to conquer. She was a prostitute, possibly because she was a widow too. We don't know, not sure. It's quite possible, one reason that could happen. So if she's a prostitute, why were the spies at her house? There were some Israelite spies who went into Jericho to, to, to spy the land out. They just happened to end up at the prostitute's house? What's the, what's the story there? And she ends up risking her life, trusting Israel's God to do the impossible and to save her while at the same time taking the city, either of which are kind of would seem pretty difficult on their own, but together, utterly impossible. And she trusts Israel's God to do that and makes, all of the, or makes those men look bad in comparison. Ruth, we love Ruth. Ruth is, is, is awesome. Uh, she's a, a widow here also. A Moabitess as well. Uh, but she's, she's just the greatest, isn't she? Like We've just, just so enjoyed seeing her character and her heart. Uh, but she was a widow because of a faithless husband, just like Tamar was. Like, and a faithless father-in-law, like Tamar was. And so, with, and so we're sort of hoping as you get to the Boaz bit, you're thinking, oh, okay, nice. This is where the upturn happens, right? Because Ruth was that, wasn't it? Isn't Ruth the story where everything's going bad and it turns up and it's beautiful restoration and everything great again? We're getting to David's line. He's the good guy, remember? Until Bathsheba is mentioned. Well, not even mentioned, did you notice? She doesn't get her name there. It's just Uriah's wife. You see, she's a widow too. She got made that way by the great King David, who slept with his best mate's wife and then murdered him to cover it up. This is not a luminary of the faith at this point. 
it's a bit hard to get your head around the idea of that being real and not some story. I don't want to. I don't want to think about it like it's real. That's what, that's, that's what the women bring to this story. They show that the, 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 when you look at the list of men without the women, you think the guys are great. These are the his, this is the history. But as soon as you get these women with some character and who God, who God approves and vindicates in these awkward situations, the guys, you realise, ah, there's problems. Now, look, it's possible, it's possible, and I actually think this is kind of true too. It's possible that Matthew has mentioned these women because it sets up for the end of the story. Okay? I love the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, where are we? Let's go down to the... Yes, chapter 28. After the Sabbath, the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, have to get which exact other Mary, there's a billion of them, uh, from the other gospels, they went to look at the tomb. Jesus is dead, so they think. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. Guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then he sends them off to be the witnesses of the resurrection. Now, Josephus, who a Jew was writing around that time, a bit after, um, he, he, he didn't regard a woman's testimony, even of multiple women, as trustworthy because of their frivolity and disposition. Uh, Celsus in the second century mocks the fact that Mary Magdalene was the one who was chosen to be uh, this, this apostle to the apostles, as she came to be known, to, to share the good news that Jesus was alive. And yet, I, I do think that Matthew is setting us up to say, hold on, God's cool with using faithful women to, to, to be the one who, ones who, who demonstrate the truth in his stories, the, the ones who are the faithful ones, the ones who can be trusted, whose words are true. He's been doing that for centuries. What, what's weird about that? So I do think that there is, there's this, this sense that Matthew is actually, at the very start of his gospel, sort of setting up the expectation that that is something that God has done as a pattern throughout history and is not unusual for him. But it's not saying, well, women are better than men, though all these particular women were better than the men in their lives. In fact, because if it was just about that, he could have chosen Deborah. You know? Could have chosen Zipporah. Could have chosen Hannah. Could have chosen Jael. Could have chosen Aksa. There's, there's, there's loads of admirable women in the Old Testament to go and find and, and to use as an example. See, these particular stories show the cracks in the facade, the, 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 the ugliness underneath the vaunted mighty men, the ones who couldn't do the task that God had given to Israel and just trust him. Just, 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 just keep trusting him. To trust and obey. King David, violent, philandering David. The, the point having been made at that midpoint of the genealogy, um, an Israelite mind reading it, you, you, you can sort of almost see the slide downwards as king after king after king gets a little bit less and less glorious, more and more strife, more and more idolatry. Yeah, a couple little good points, but Israel just will not play her role. Israel refuses to do her job. She has never trusted and obeyed her God. She, she didn't do her job, and so it remains to be done. 
This is the thing. So when Jesus rocks up and Matthew starts painting this picture, and that's, that's sort of the, the, the reason behind the, the importance of being Israel title for this, for this little, little few weeks, it, is that Jesus is painted in this story as being Israel. Israel itself. Everything that she was to do, he is going to step up and do. You see, for God and for Matthew, specifics matter. Specifics matter. Like, like who are you? I mean, I'll, I'll answer it for me. One way that we could answer that question, um, I could say, I'm God's son. I'm Melissa's husband. Fyodor Rafa and Elena's father. And I'm a teaching elder at Seoul. Kind of in that order. There's other bits and pieces you could sort of talk about times and places, whatever. But this is, this is a summary. You could say that that's, that's my job. Well, what's yours? Could, could you just, just take a moment just to, to think, hold on, who am I? What are, what are, my, what are my roles in relationship? The, the big ones. Just, just pick a few of the big ones. You don't have to put them in order. But just, if you can, get that in your head. See, if the origin story is so important... Oh, hold on. Oh, we should go one more thing first. Um, but then also there's this directional thing too. Because I'm from Alex Gale, Brisbane, childhood of difficult times in my own mind at least. And I'm destined to be truly human. I'm destined to be in Christ. And I'm destined to be in His image. That's, that's the trajectory that's there. I'm no longer where I was. That's where I'm from, but it's not who I, not who I am. It's nice to be able to make that distinction, isn't it? Acknowledge that's where I'm from. It's not who I am. And there's somewhere that I'm headed because of Christ. Now, this, this origin story here, the specifics of it are so important. Did you notice that even, even more than Abraham, David is the one that Matthew ties Jesus most closely to. And he's the worst person in the list. In the way that he's told it, at least. Why did he do that? What's Matthew trying to do? I think this is where he's going. Let's head to the back. This is Matthew 28, little, just, just a little bit after the, the, um, the witness of the women. When Jesus' disciples saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What's so important? Why did he tie Jesus to David? Because the end of Jesus' story is to be the great king, it is to do the job that David should have done, it is, to, is to conquer evil in all its various forms. And he has done so by the end of this gospel. You see, Matthew wants you to understand there was a job for Jesus to do, and he didn't get a choice in that. Of course, he did back in the very <laughs> beginnings of time with the, with the Father and the Spirit together as they cooked this all up. But, but as he comes to be a little baby and then growing up and as a human like you or me, and he's trying to understand who he is and who am I? What am I going to do with my life? What might I like to do? He finds that that's not his option. But he is a man with an inheritance. He is an Israelite. And some Israelites got to do the job. Or the world doesn't get saved. And it is, it is up to him. He is of the line. He is of the, he is of the blood of the ones who it ought to be. 
See, it wouldn't matter if there was a sinless person in Indonesia somewhere. It wouldn't matter if there was a supremely wise, sorry, supremely wise man who lived in China a few thousand years ago. By all accounts, there are a few of those. And it wouldn't matter if there was a woman who was so in touch with the divine Logos that she lived completely in tune with it in a way that was just beautiful for her and everyone around her. I mean, King Lemuel's mum in the book of Proverbs might come kind of close to that. See, but God hasn't promised to bring the world to rights through anyone like that. He had a specifics matter here. Jesus had a particular inheritance and a particular job to do, and I can't do it. I could, no Israelite could do it, but I wasn't even in the, I'm not even in the, in the running. It doesn't matter if I could do it, which I obviously can't. I'm not, I, it's not my identity. It's not who I am. The specifics matter. Let's go back to just, just for half a second. Identity matters because you are, because who you are, sorry, I, I'll slow down. I'll get a bit of water. Tongue's getting a little bit sticky. Identity matters because who you are determines what you must do. Identity matters because who you are determines what you must do. So if you're a Christian here today, if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your king, he's, you're, you're honouring him, that's what your life's about. When you're not taking out the rubbish, which you really want to do because you get anxious when rubbish isn't taken out, it doesn't, you don't like the, the world when the rubbish isn't taken out, because your child needs your attention, and that's really awkward and uncomfortable and bad because <laughs> the child needing your attention makes you feel like maybe I've not been a good parent because I don't like the way they're responding to me. Take joy in being who you were made to be and doing your specific job because of who you are. When you are taking out the rubbish later, feeling much better about it, because you're busy with the kids, then revel in walking in the good deeds that God gave to you, even though it's now one o'clock in the morning or whatever time it is, you got everything else done. You've received this lot. We receive our lots. They're not, we don't get to choose them all. And it is yours. It is no one else's. No one else can do it. It is your role. Receive it with joy. When you're doing homework, kids, you got homework, it's there, it's stupid, it does, it's pointless. But when you're doing homework, it is noble and holy and honouring to God to do the work. No, no one else can form the discipline in your heart and mind and body that, that you need to be faithful as, as an adult for you. It, it is your job. It is your role. It is what you have to do. When you're submitting to your parents being unfair to you, no one else, that is your lot. That is your role. That is the thing you have received to grow you in godliness into the people who one day are going to be fit to rule the earth. When you disobeyed your parents, when you no, when, I mean this, when you're deliberately as an adult disobeying your parents, but with honour and respect for them as an adult, because it's the right thing to do to disobey them, to not do the thing that they ask you to do, but doing so with respect and love, don't feel guilty. Feel the joy of your heavenly Father, who is above them, your truest Father, the one who is in heaven, the one who even Jesus honoured when it meant that when his earthly parents said, don't do that, as once it was appropriate as an adult, he then made the choice to honour his heavenly father. The specifics of our identity really matter. Um, when, you have chance, when, you have, when you have to put other things in your life on hold, maybe promotion, job promotion chances, whatever it might be, in order to honour your ageing parents by making sure that they're well cared for, that's your job. No one else can do it. 
It's not their job, it's your job. And that is good. That is good for you to sacrifice some of those things. That is a beautiful thing. That is wonderful on the side of God. It is his life for you. When you're changing a nappy, take joy in your role. Whatever it is, when you're doing, when you choose to do the right thing over the thing that someone else is putting pressure on you to do, over the thing that you always would have done because it's just how our family works, over, over what you want to do, over what makes you feel better, over what you feel like you should be doing, even though you read the Bible and you think, actually, I, my, my conscience is wrong. Jesus says this, obey Jesus. Do the role that he has given you. Receive it willingly, for this is good there are things for us to receive that we don't get to choose now the most important of these is actually also at the end of Matthew 28 you see here today even though we, even though we did get to um, uh, even though we did get to to the end here and you see this instruction go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the spirit actually that's the second thing because he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who actually have already put their trust in him, who have come to him. And that is actually the most important thing to do, is to recognise Jesus' role, that he is our saviour, that he is the one whose performance matters. This is the whole basis of uh, uh, Gentle and Lowly, the, the great, beautiful book, that actually... All of these things about doing our job and receiving that, that's a, those are the joys of following Jesus. They're not the things that we do to, to, to save the world or to earn, earn our way through. It's Jesus who's going to save the world. We're not going to. Israel's job was to trust God in everything, even to the point of death, and so bring blessing to the world. Couldn't do it. But, but Jesus is the one who does that. So it's not, just, it's not just my individual salvation. It's not just a matter of Protestant theology to say that, oh, salvation is by, by grace, and I know that it's Jesus who actually saves. The restoration of the world, the restoration of the cosmos only comes about in exactly the same way. It's going to come through Jesus. This Christmas in Matthew, we're going to see how Jesus is Israel time and time again. And it's important that he was Israel because we're not just we couldn't be, but we're not. It's not our job. We don't need that weight on our shoulders. We've got plenty of weights on our shoulders that are right and good for us to pick up and carry. But that yoke is easy and that burden is light because Jesus has taken on his for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him putting on his shoulders all the things that he needed to so that we, Lord, might be able to carry our burdens and carry each other's. Father, this is, might, have, might have some tricky ethical situations that this might have sort of raised for us as we think about our different roles and responsibilities and so father help us as a community to talk about them together to discuss it to work through it together and to pray to you together so that lord we might not be just relying on you in word and in doctrine but in practical prayer going to you knowing that you that your son is the one who has fulfilled all things and who is uh who will one day make the world beautifully perfect and recreated once again we ask it in his name for his glory. Amen.